Now, brethren, the world understands or at least recognizes that the Sabbath is a time for rest, a time of a, a day of rest. But, you know, the Sabbath is more than just a time to sleep. It's a time to pause, which is something that we find hard to do in our world today that keeps us moving at a very uh, fast pace. It's a time to pause, a time to reflect, and a time to focus on the big questions of life. Yet that's not something that many people do today because we're all busy. We're running here, we're running there. And to actually stop and reflect on what the purpose of life is or why we're here is really not something that many of us do, especially in the world. But I want to focus on some big questions of life today. And I was going to college. I wasn't interested in the purpose of life. interested in girls. interested in other things. But these questions, why are we here? Why is the world the way it is? Are things we need to think about, especially on the Sabbath. You know, why is our world in such a mess? I mean, you look at the news today and things are happening. You wonder, this is crazy. This is crazy what's happening today. The increasing violence, the wars, the corruption, the disease epidemics, all these things are happening. Mr. Weston addressed that in his comments in the world ahead about problems that are getting worse. It was interesting. He wrote those this week, and I was going through an email that I got from a school where I went to uh, sometime in the past, and the president of the university was talking about exactly the same thing. The president of a major university, and he was giving a graduation talk, and he mentioned that 20 years ago, whenever he graduated from medical school, he and the other graduates were determined to tackle the problems of the world and make a difference. He's idealistic. I met the fellow, very nice gentleman, very sincere gentleman. But he said, yet today, decades later, the problems are even bigger. The problems are even bigger than it was 20 years ago when he graduated. But why do these problems keep growing? Why do they get bigger and bigger and more frustrating to everybody? Why is our nation and the United States and other nations of the West especially, they appear to be coming apart? Why? Why do we appear to be coming apart with violent demonstrations, racial strife, claims or desires to disband the police, drug addictions, multiple shootings? came across a study, I just wanted to share very quickly with you, done by Arizona Christian University. It's entitled, American Christians are Redefining the Faith. Adherents are creating new worldviews loosely tied to biblical teaching. Loosely tied to biblical teaching. And just some of the results of this study. 60% of evangelicals don't read the Bible daily. But they're evangelicals. They're really turned on about religion, Christian religion, so to speak. But 60% don't read the Bible daily, and 52% reject absolute moral truth. 
that there's no right, that there's no wrong. But over 50% of evangelicals reflect, uh, reject the idea of moral truth. 60% of Protestant beliefs contradict the Bible. 60% of Protestant beliefs contradict the Bible. Truth and morality are relative for many Protestants today, and they also believe that there's really no purpose for life, maybe just going to heaven. But other than that, there's really no purpose. And you can't really know the purpose of life. Catholics, for many Catholics, sex outside of marriage is okay. And so, and this is according to the study. This is not me. This is according to the study. Many Catholics also believe that uh, lying, speeding, and not repaying a loan is, is okay. Again, what's happening in our country? What's happening in our nations? What's going on in the world? Why are these things happening? And why do so many people have problems? Why do so many people that even claim to be Christians have problems? I want to talk about some of these things today in the sermon. Um, you know, while many are too busy to think about these dramatic changes, to think deeply about them, these changes are affecting your life. They're affecting my life. And they're going to affect the lives of your children that are growing up because they're growing up in a very different world. You know, when people do think about these big questions, they don't have any answers. They don't have any answers to why these things are happening if you look at the media and listen to the news, news media reports the news. They report events, and they kind of speculate on why it's happening, but they have no idea where it's going because they simply don't know. You know, I read news magazines for a number of years, U.S. News World Report and some of these things. They, they describe something, but they have no idea what the answer is. They have no idea what the solutions are. They just report the news. Governments pass more laws. Uh, they throw out old leaders and bring in new leaders, and this is supposed to solve all the problems. But it really doesn't do that. It really doesn't do that. These things have never worked. Many churches, their solution is you've got to pray. You've got to pray for peace, pray for this, pray for that. If you're really active, you can become a social justice warrior and try and improve the world. But these things still don't work. We still have these problems. What I want to focus on today is that there are real answers to the big questions of life. There really are big answers to the questions of life. And I want to explain why the world, and these, 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 questions, these answers also explain why the world is the way it is. The answers also involve a very special opportunity that's been given to you. The answers to the questions of life include a very special opportunity or special opportunities that you have been given by God that the world has not been given. The reason we don't understand the lessons, the answers to the questions of life is we've rejected the source. We've rejected the source of those answers, and that source is the Bible. 
I want to make a statement. I think, please write it down in your notes. The Bible contains revealed information that is unavailable from any other source. The Bible contains revealed information that is unavailable from any other source. And when you reject the Bible, you don't study the Bible, you're not going to find the answers to really big questions of life. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 1, Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, we begin to find out why the world doesn't understand the answers to the big questions of life and why the world has the problems that it does. Proverbs 1 and verse 7, Solomon writes here, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you check some more modern translations, it says the fear of the Lord is the starting point, the starting point of all knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. You can check the scriptures later, but in Romans chapter 1, it mentions there that when human beings rejected God, they became fools. They became fools when they rejected God, rejected the Bible. They became fools. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says pretty much the same thing, just translated slightly differently. And these are important things to understand. They're keys to understanding why the world is the way it is. Proverbs 9 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord, and if you fear God, you're going to obey God. If you fear the Lord, you're going to do what he says. You're going to follow his instructions. The fear of the Lord is the beginning or the starting point of wisdom. That's where everything starts. We throw away the Bible. We uh, reject the knowledge of God. Then we're going to be on our own. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and a knowledge of the Holy One. The knowledge of God, his plan, his purpose is understanding. See, the world doesn't understand why we have problems today because they've turned their back on God. They've turned their back on the scriptures. And the motto of Ambassador College, Living University, and I think of Living Education, is that the word of God is the foundation of all knowledge. This book is the foundation of everything. The principles that are there provide guidance that we cannot find and we cannot get from any other source. And this is why the world doesn't understand why we have the problems that we do. The word of God is the foundation of knowledge, the knowledge of God, knowledge of his plan and purpose, a knowledge of mankind, who we are, why we're here. This all comes from the scriptures. Psalm 119, verse 98, maybe just jot it down. David said, your commandments, your, your, your commandments in the Bible, make me wiser than my enemies. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. And if we study those commandments, we're going to be wiser than the critics that like to criticize those commandments. Hosea 8 and verse 12, very interesting observation that actually a prophecy that Hosea made about 700 B.C. 
Hosea mentions there that God gave Israel the great things of his law, but the Israelites came to consider that law strange. God gave ancient Israel his laws. He said, these are the wonderful things. These, these are the keys to life. But the Israelites came to conclude that um, the law was strange. We just heard a sermonette about the clean and unclean meat principles. If you tell people today, well, I don't eat shrimp. You don't eat those juicy little things. <laughs> These are delicacies. They're delicacies. But they sit on the bottom and they go to everything that floats by. And then we eat them. It's like eating your the bag on your vacuum cleaner. <laughs> Maybe that's why they have a shot of whiskey after they eat them to kill anything <laughs> that might happen to be there. But you know, the, we don't ask, what's the function of these things? Well, they're low in, in fat, so we eat them because they're supposedly good. And yet they're the vacuum cleaners of the sea. They're designed to filter bacteria, viruses, heavy metals, and they concentrate those things in their tissues, and then we eat them. Now, the world thinks this is crazy not to eat these things. You know, we lived in the, around the Boston area for about uh, 10 years. And you get downtown Boston, they have oyster bars, and they have lobster fishermen. It's, it's a big part of the economy up there. But the Bible says we're not supposed to eat those things for reasons, and the reasons are there. But as modern Israelites today, we're like the ancient Israelites. Well, these are strange ideas that come out of the Bible. But they're not strange. They're very practical. What does the Bible, what, is the, what do the scriptures actually reveal about the world and its problems that we face today? You modern scholars today, they look around, they look at what you can see, what you can measure with instruments, and they assume that the physical and the material is all that there is. They assume that the physical and the material world is all that there is. And yet the Bible tells us there's another dimension. There's another dimension beyond the physical and beyond the spiritual. And that other dimension is the spirit world. And yet if you mention that today, especially in science classes, you get one of these weird looks. But the world, the spirit world really does exist. It's not anything to play with. You know, people that do some exploring in the spiritual world, they play Ouija games and stuff like that where tables can rise and things happen. They're fascinated by that because there is something real. There is something real. You can't measure it, but it's real. But the Bible tells us to be very careful with these things. Be very careful with these things, especially these other dimensions. The Bible reveals there is another dimension. There is a spirit world and spirit beings that are good and some are bad. And we need to understand that basic concept. Because the spirit world can influence people for good. God can put thoughts in your mind. I can remember driving around New England to do some visits up there. Many of the roads are paved over cow trails. <laughs> they go all over the place. And that was before we had GPS. And I would pray. 
God, I need to find this place. And I would use a map to generally get there. But I'm driving around. I'd look up, and there's the street that I needed. <laughs> there was the street that I needed. Uh, you know, God can influence things for good, but there is also an influence that can influence in very, us in very bad ways if we're not alert, if we don't understand what's happening. I remember we had a couple of ladies in one of the churches that I was pastoring. They were new. And I got a call one night and said, uh, strange things are happening in the house. We're hearing windows rattle or doors are opening and closing and drawers are coming open and closed. And I said, what have you been doing? They said, nothing. We were just having a Bible study about Satan. I said, why don't you change your Bible study? We start reading a book of Proverbs, book of Psalms, uh, start listening to some very positive music, uh, change the environment. And I talked to them a week or two later in church. I said, how are things at home? What's happening? They said, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Because they changed the environment at home. Instead of studying all about Satan, they were focused on the Psalms. They were creating a different mental environment, a different physical environment. But these things are real. People can get fascinated by things that um, they can't really explain. But the Bible tells us about this spirit world. I've chosen as the title for the sermon today, A Tale of Two Spirits. A Tale of Two Spirits. On, a, on the holy day of Pentecost, we talk about God's spirit. But we need to talk about that more than just on the day of Pentecost. But I want to talk about two spirits. Because you can't really understand the world today unless we understand that there are two spirits influencing this world. You know, Dr. Meredith, I think, had an article on uh, Satan's alternative universe. Satan has his own way of doing things. But God has a very different way of doing things. And I think it's kind of hard to make sense out of this world unless we understand there are two spirits influencing this world. In order to effectively deal with the challenges that we face in this world, why do good things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? <laughs> because Satan will try and work with us. He'll try to discourage us. He'll get us our attention. He'll try to influence us and tempt us. And we need to understand these things because this is all part of life. I've used this example with my sons. One Friday night, we were walking upstairs from the basement. We'd been down in the basement talking, and I was first. Uh, my youngest son was second. I'll leave the names out of it. <laughs> and my older son was, was at the bottom. So we're coming up on different steps, and all of a sudden, I hear my older son go, Oh! Grabs his stomach. And... Uh, he said, my brother just kicked me in the stomach. So I grabbed my son and I said, why did you do that? He said, I don't know. I just felt like it. I just felt like it. I said, who do you think would put a thought in your mind to kick your brother in the stomach? He said, I think I know. I said, look, one of the lessons of life is you don't act on every thought that comes into your mind. You've got to evaluate it 
and some you just kick out and you don't do. But we have to explain these things, where these thoughts come from, uh, where actions come from. You know, people to get into these shooting situations, well, I had a thought, or I had this idea. Something made me do it. Something made me do it. But unless we're aware of where these thoughts come from, uh, we're going to get sucked into doing things that we're going to regret later on. So I want to talk about two spirits. First we'll talk about is God's Holy Spirit. And again, we need to cover this more than just once a year. Because this is something that God makes available to us, to a very small group of people at this point in time. It's something that we have an opportunity to learn how to use. If we don't use it, then uh, we're going to lose out. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter just preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost. Uh, People were moved. In verse 38, then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you... He was answering a question. They heard his sermon. They said, what do we do? Uh, Where do we go from here? Peter said to them, repent. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. It's something that God makes available to us. But there are conditions. We've got to repent, come to realize that, you know, I've been wrong. I I need to go in a different direction. We repent. Baptism, you're making a commitment to God to live according to his laws, to live according to his instructions. That's part of the, the, the covenant that we make with God. And then the Bible talks about we have a laying on of hands. We ask the ministers to lay their hands on us, coming under the authority of God in the church. And then we have to obey God. It's not just reaching out, touching your radio, and having something magic happen. We've got to actually live according to the laws of God. These are part of the instructions, Acts 5.32, so that God gives his spirit to those who obey him. Not just those who kind of want to be a Christian, but to those who obey him. If we stop obeying God, then he will withdraw that spirit. So these are the instructions that we need to follow. You know, the world has been told, and many of the people in the world think, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And this is just common knowledge among most people. I had an interesting experience with a young fellow that came across the church a number of years ago. And he called me up, and we talked a number of times on the phone. We may have even gotten together. Uh, But he was trying to do his homework. That um, He had found a paperback book that basically said that um, unless the church that you're interested in teaches that there is a trinity, they're not true Christian churches. And he learned that we don't believe in a trinity. So he decided, well, according to my paperback book that I was studying, I don't want to get involved with you guys because you don't believe in a trinity. And I explained to him why we don't, but I think he found the paperback book more credible than than my explanation. 
But these are things you need to nail down for yourself. Why don't we believe in the Trinity? A couple of very quick reasons here. Look up the word Trinity in the Bible and see what it says about the Trinity. You won't find that word in the Bible. It's simply not there. So one of the fundamental teachings of Christianity, worldly Christianity, is the Trinity. But it's not in the Bible. It's not there. You can check the um, salutations of Paul's epistles, Romans 1.7, 1 Corinthians 1.3, where Paul says, Greeting in the name of the Father and in the name of Jesus Christ. And he mentions nothing about the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is a person, then Paul just ignores the Holy Spirit as a person. It's just not there. You can go to John 14 very quickly. This is one of the scriptures that is used to infer that the Holy Spirit is a person. We've got material written on this, but just noticing it very quickly. Where Jesus is talking with his disciples the night before he's crucified, in verse, 14, in verse 15 of chapter 14, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. And this is used to infer that the Holy Spirit is a person. And yet the word helper, parakletos, comforter, is a masculine word. So grammatically, uh, you need a pronoun that is masculine. That's why you use he there. Now, if the word parakletos was a feminine word, then you would say, she <laughs> will be with you. Uh, but the Holy Spirit is not masculine, it's not feminine, it, it's neuter. Another example, in uh, Yosemite National Park, there's a big rocky uh, outcrop. It's called El Capitan. El Capitan. It's a masculine word. But when you climb that rock, or you try to climb it, and some climbers take two or three days to get up it, and they sleep up there, suspended from ropes. You don't say, I climbed him. You say, I climbed it. I climbed it. You know, um, we've got some tables around here. The Spanish word for table is la mesa. You don't say, put your glass on her. <laughs> you say, put it on it, the table over there. This is These are grammatical things. It's some people will infer that the Holy Spirit is a person because he is used in that verse. But this is just, it doesn't work that way. The New Catholic Encyclopedia makes some very interesting observations. In the Old Testament, it mentions about God's spirit. It says God's spirit is clearly not a person. This is the New Catholic Encyclopedia. The Holy Spirit is clearly not a person, but God's power. But God's power. It. God's power. New Catholic Encyclopedia in the New Testament says God's spirit is something, not someone. This is what the Catholics understand. At least their book tells you that. Now, they may preach some things that are a little bit different. Go to Acts chapter 1 quickly. And this pretty much confirms what we were just talking about. Acts chapter 1. 
Jesus is giving his disciples some instructions. They're asking, verse 6 of chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In verse 7, he said unto them, It's not for you to know the time of the seasons, which the Father has put in his own authority, but you will receive, or you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Here Jesus says, You will receive power. And when you go to Acts chapter 2, that power, the demonstration of that power, was the wind that came rushing into the room, the flames of fire that appeared on the heads of the disciples, and then the capacity to speak in different languages. This was the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what they saw. It was not him or her. It was the power of God. That's what the Catholic Encyclopedia had said. Um, in Acts chapter 8, verse 19, when Simon Magus, Simon the magician, saw the, the miracles that the apostles were doing, they said, give me him or give me her. They said, give me that power. Give me that power. The point I want to make here is that the Holy Spirit is not a person. It's not the third person of the Trinity. It's the power of God that is available to you. And to me. It's available to you and to me. The Bible makes clear that God's Spirit is not given to everyone. It's only given to a few people. This is something we need to really appreciate. We need to appreciate. A couple of scriptures in Isaiah 65 and verse 1. Isaiah mentions there, is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, I will be found by those who sought me not. I will be found by those who sought me not. Paul quotes the same scripture in Romans 10.20. He's talking to the Gentiles and compared to the Jews. But I think there's a broader application. That think about your own calling. How many of you were actively looking for God? I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't. I had had one year of graduate school. I came home for a, a two-week vacation. I thought, I'm going to go back and really tie into everything. And then my brother, who had been to the college that we operate in England, came home and made fun of what I was doing. He's kind of like, what do you know that I don't know? And he's my younger brother. <laughs> he gave me a couple booklets to read, and I read them. They made sense. I went back to... Uh, Mississippi, where I was going to school, started going to the library every Sabbath. And I called up the minister. I said, I'd like to keep the Sabbath. He said, what do you do on the Sabbath? I said, go to the library. He said, walk across the street. <laughs> walk across the street. We meet upstairs, the second floor of the YWCA, I think it was. I wasn't looking for this. Yeah, I wasn't looking for this at all. Think about your own case. How did God make contact with you? How did he get your attention? And what we read in the Bible is that God's going to be found by us because he's looking for you. He's looking for you. He's calling a small group of people. John 6.44 and John 6.65, we're told there that unless you're called, unless God calls you, it's going to be very difficult to understand the purpose of life. 
difficult to come up with real answers to the questions of life. Your calling is a capacity to understand the, the truth of God. That's why you can't convert your neighbors. Both my brother and I tried to convert my mom and dad. It didn't work. <laughs> I guess we were bad evangelists. No, you can't, you can't get people to understand what you do unless God is opening their minds with his spirit. Now, for those of you who are younger and growing up in the church, don't take for granted what you've been able to understand as a result of attending church and being with your parents. You've got a very special understanding. Don't take that lightly. Don't take that lightly. I met a fellow, a middle-aged fellow, a year or so ago, and uh, I said, well, how did you get involved with the church? He said, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a church, but I left for about 10 or 15 years. He said, what a waste of time. What a waste of time to be gone for 10 or 15 years. He's come back, and he's kind of struggling to catch up. But here was a guy that was raised in the church, came to conclude the grass was greener on the other side, and went out there, and the grass wasn't greener. The problems were bigger. So don't take for granted what you've been given. Hang on to that. Hang on to that. John 15 and verse 14. And this is how God's spirit works. John 15 and verse 14. Again, Jesus is talking with his disciples the night before he's crucified. Verse 16. Let's start there. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You did not choose me, I chose you. Put your name in there. Put your name in there. I chose you, John, Sally, Susie, whatever your name is. Can you contemplate and think about that God actually chose you out of the billions on this earth? We've been called to become part of a small little group, a little flock. You know, a couple of years ago, I went back to a high school reunion. And I, I, yeah, it was high school. And I talked with one of the guys. He went to West Point uh, and then to Southeast Asia. We played basketball together. And I, he was asking, what, did I, what have I done since we graduated? And I asked him what he did. And then I, I think I left him a, a booklet on the U.S. and Britain and prophecy. Never heard from him. Never heard from him. I left with another kid that I went to high school with. Uh, <clears throat> never heard from him again. You know, I've, I've tried to share certain things because hopefully I'll meet these guys in resurrection at some point in time. And I don't want them to say, you never told me <laughs> what you were into. But I tried to share it, but... If God is not opening their minds, it's not going to make a lot of sense. Another kid I went to high school with, somebody gave him a subscription to one of our magazines. And he was in the hospital. He read some of it. And he said, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. 
But if you understand the plan and purpose of God, you begin to understand the Bible, that's because God has turned the lights on in your mind with his spirit. That's an incredible opportunity. It's an incredible opportunity. That comes as a result of God working in your mind with his spirit, with that power of his spirit. Why would we want the Holy Spirit? Why would you want it? Why would you want it? I remember the first feast I went to, I was going to school in Mississippi, hopped a bus, got over to Alabama someplace, and then had to change the bus and head off to Brunswick, Georgia. So I go to the place where people are waiting for the Brunswick, Georgia bus, and I noticed some people with suitcases, and they were dressed sort of nice, and we just started talking. Somebody said, where are you from? I said, Mississippi. I said, where are you going? I said, actually, Jekyll Island. I saw some sparks in their eyes. Uh, you wouldn't be going to the feast, would you? I said, yeah, I am. Uh, well, how long have you been involved with the church? I said, two or three months. <laughs> they said, are you baptized? I said, well, I was baptized as a kid. He said, well, you need to get baptized again. I said, why? He said, so you can receive the Holy Spirit. And I said, why? <laughs> I had no idea that was what was involved. But actually doing some studies later and listening to sermons, I began to realize why I needed the Holy Spirit. Why I needed the Holy Spirit. And we're going to be talking about that for just a little bit. What does the Holy Spirit do for us? Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now God will begin working with you by his Spirit before you're baptized. He will lead you. Uh, He will guide you. He will do things in your life to get your attention. But in Matthew 13, Jesus was talking with his disciples. They asked him a question. Again, these are big questions of life that uh, they were asking Jesus. may not have seemed that big at the moment, but when we put it in perspective, it is a big question of life. Matthew 13, beginning verse 10. The disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to these people in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it had been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To them it's not been given. It's been given to you to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the purpose of human life. What is going on in the world? That's been given to you, the people that God is calling individuals that God is calling to understand the plan and purpose of life, the way of life. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about the same thing. He's talking to a Gentile audience here in First Corinthians, not to the disciples, but to an audience of Gentiles in a very uh, <clears throat> with it community in Corinth. But Paul mentions here in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, We speak the wisdom, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. 
Now, if we are attracted to the world, we need to realize this world is coming to nothing. This world is coming, this age is coming to an end. And if you're tempted to, well, you know, I'll cut out a church early and I'm going to a movie and I'm going to do this and do that. This is all going to end, maybe sooner than we realize. He said, this world is coming to nothing. Verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. What Paul is talking about here in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians. The wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. God has a plan from the very beginning. The world doesn't understand that. But God has called us and given us an understanding of that, which none of the rulers, thinkers, leaders of this age knew. For had they known this, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Verse 10, but God has revealed these things to us through his spirit. It's God's spirit working in your mind that gives you a capacity to begin to understand the Bible that the world doesn't have. This is the power of God's Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, just even the deep things of God. And he says, For what man knows the things of man except the Spirit in man? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. So it's God's Spirit in our minds that give us this capacity to begin to understand the Bible, the purpose of human life. And it's nothing to take for granted. It's something to really appreciate and value extremely. You can look up some of the other scriptures in John 14, verses 15 to 17. It says the Holy Spirit is a spirit of truth. It guides you to what the truth is. And it says there the world cannot receive that spirit. The world can't receive it. Only those that God is calling can receive that. John 14, verse 26, it says that Holy Spirit will teach you all things. It will help you put things together to make sense out of life, of why things are the way they are. John 16, verse 13. So John 14, 15, 16 has some very fundamental things about the spirit world. John 16, 13 says the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. It will help you understand the truth of God. John 8.32 says that the truth will set you free. When you understand the truth about God, the truth about the Bible, the truth about doctrines, you're not going to be deceived. You're going to see through these things. You know, the young fellow I was talking to about the, the, the Trinity, he couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. In spite of the scriptures that we went through, he said, yeah, but my paperback book says the Trinity has got to be a fundamental teaching in any true church. But it's not in the Bible. Reminds me of a lecture I heard a number of years ago. The speaker said, what is going to be covered in this lecture is not in the Bible. <laughs> but he was expecting everybody that was listening to, to listen to the lecture. <clears throat> And a lot of people went off in the wrong direction because of that. John 17, 17. It says that the truth of God, let's just read it quick. <clears throat> John 17, verse 17. It's the concluding comments of the prayer that Jesus offered on the Passover. Um, 
So sanctify them. Jesus is asking God, sanctify them, my disciples, by your truth. For your word is truth. To sanctify something means to set them apart for a holy purpose. To be set apart for a holy purpose. To sanctify Christ's disciples. And it's the truth of God that sets the church of God apart from all the other churches in the world. The truth about the Trinity. The truth about the purpose of human life. The truth about the holy days. It's the truth that sets the church apart. Mr. Armstrong put together during his lifetime a list of 18 truths. 18 truths that included uh, the truth about the holy days, how they picture the plan of God. The truth about the identity of Israel, which is a key to understanding Bible prophecy. And yet these things have been discarded by various people that have left the church. I remember asking one individual, what are you guys going to do with the U.S. and B.C. material? And this leader says, we're not sure. We're not sure what to do with it. But it's a key to understanding Bible prophecy, and you're not sure what to do with it. You know, if we don't value that truth, we're going to wind up out in the left field, getting lost in the bushes. Why is God giving this gift of the Holy Spirit to only a few people now? Why is God giving this truth about the Holy Spirit to only a few people right now? The scripture I've mentioned before that we need to think about in this discussion. In Luke 12, verse 48, Luke 12, 48 says, To whom much is given, much will be required. We have been given an incredible opportunity to understand some of the big questions of human life, why the world is the way it is. And we're going to be held responsible for that. Part of our job is to warn the world about what's coming. Part of our job is to deliver a gospel, the good news of what's coming down the road ahead that we can be part of. This is exciting material. But why does God just give his spirit to a few people, to a smaller group of people? A couple of scriptures to keep in mind. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 12. God has a mission for the people that he's chosen to work with. And we never want to lose sight of that mission. We've been called to be part of a church that has a mission. We can't get off in other things. Just talking briefly about the Israelites in Genesis chapter 12. God chose Abraham and just wanted to work with him. And this was his mission. Get out of your country and from your family. Most of us have been called out of the world. We've left families. We've left friends. In some cases, we've left environments where we were called. But following that parallel, get out of your country and from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why God gave his laws to the Israelites. So that they would be different. That they would have a way of life that is totally different from the way the world is living. 
And their mission was to share that way of life with the rest of the world, to be a light to the world. But Israel reneged on the promise there or the commitment, uh, and they paid a penalty as a result. You can read through Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, where God says, I've given you my laws to the Israelites so you can be an example to the world. Today the world is told that the law is a burden. The law is a curse. But in 1 John 5, 3, it says the law is not a burden. The law is not a burden. It's a blessing. Now, if it's a burden not to eat shrimp or lobster, then <laughs> that's a burden that you'll have to carry if you're going to follow the instructions in the Bible. But you can also avoid a lot of sickness. You can avoid a lot of problems. If you just follow those simple guidelines, it's a blessing. It's not a curse. Part of our mission today, turn to Luke chapter 1 and verse 17. Luke 1 and verse 17. This is the mission of John the Baptist, but it's also something that we take seriously as a church, and we need to realize that we are part of this. Luke chapter 1, verse 17, talking about a prophecy of John the Baptist. But it's a mission. It says, He will go forth before him, that is, John the Baptist will go before Jesus Christ, in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You read a little bit about Elijah. He had power to exercise that was awesome. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, an emphasis on the family, uh, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Christ is coming back. He's going to need a staff of individuals that are prepared to teach his laws to the rest of the world. Are you prepared to do that? Are you preparing to do that? We need to be preparing for this because this is our future, is what I was talking about. Why is this important? We need to be led by God's Spirit. In other words, we read the Scriptures and we do what it says. We need to be led by God's Spirit. We must obey God. Acts 5.32, that God gives His Spirit to those who obey Him. If we stop obeying God, then He'll begin to withdraw that Spirit. And you're going to lose the confidence, you'll lose the understanding. I remember talking to an individual a number of years ago, back in the 70s, when a big chunk of the people on the East Coast went off in a different direction. And it was one of these phone calls where you talk for about two hours, you go around and around and around in circles, at the end of the conversation, it's kind of like, <laughs> so what did we accomplish? Nothing. He went off in his direction, I stayed where I was. Uh, <clears throat> But there was a loss of understanding there because his comment was, well, you know, the Baptists are doing a good job and Methodists are doing a good job and a lot of churches are doing good jobs. The understanding was gone that we had at one time together. But when you stop keeping the laws of God, then God withdraws that spirit. It's a dynamic situation. This is why we need to stay close to God. We need to pray every day. We need to be reading the scriptures every day so God's word flows through our mind so that we're thinking along those lines. Because if we're spending a lot of time on the Internet, we're gossiping a lot, God's spirit is not going to be there. 
God's Spirit is not going to be there. When I was in college, we lived in a fraternity house, and the language wasn't really that good. And I found myself saying things because I'd heard it. <laughs> that Doug said that. <laughs> and I was embarrassed. But when you hang around people that have a different vocabulary, it's going to seep into your vocabulary. But if we're hanging around in the scriptures and letting those things go through our mind, these other things are not going to creep in. I remember talking with a lady who was a Seventh-day Adventist one time. And I said, uh, <clears throat> no, she was, yeah, yeah, Seventh-day Adventist. I said, I understand that you believe it's wrong to drink coffee and tea. She said, that's right. I said, do you ever drink coffee or tea? She said, well, it sneaks in once in a while, you know. It sneaks in once in a while. And if we're not careful, things will think uh, sleep, yeah. Get into our mind. Uh, we've got to be careful that way. God is looking for fruit from that spirit. He gives us his spirit. Maybe review Galatians <clears throat> um, chapter 5, verses 16 to 26, where it talks about the fruit of God's spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. And then ask yourself, have I been patient in the experiences that I've had today or the dealing with people today? Am I at peace with myself, with my spouse, with my kids? See, God's Spirit gives us a sense of peace because we understand that God is for us. He's not against us. Romans 8.28 says, All things work to the good. For those that are called according to God's purpose. When things get difficult, we can go back to these scriptures where God says all things, all things, something that may appear to be pretty bad, it will work out. It will work out if we're looking to God to guide these things. And we do what we're supposed to do. And don't get worried about somebody else. The influence of God's spirit is powerful. I want to go back to an example in the Old Testament. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, where Samuel was told to anoint Saul as the first king. And notice the impact here. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1 says, Now Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, It is not... Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Uh, Verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man or another person. God's Spirit is going to change you. What happened to you when God began to work with you? You probably started keeping the Sabbath. You stopped smoking or you did this or did that. People notice you're different. What happened to you? God's spirit will change you, give you a different focus. Verse 9, so it was when he had turned back, Samuel did, and go from, from Samuel, that God gave him another spirit or another heart. And those signs 
And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets, and they met him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, on Saul, and he prophesied among them. Verse 11, it happened when all who knew him formerly saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to one another, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? They noticed Saul was different. They noticed Saul was different. But notice what happened then. We're reading over a couple of chapters where Saul basically turns, doesn't obey God. And Samuel is told to anoint David. So we go to chapter 16. Beginning in verse 12, Samuel finds David, and he's told by God, this is the one. Verse 13, Samuel took a horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of the brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. So when Saul received God's spirit, he was a different person. But when he disobeyed God, that spirit was withdrawn. And Saul had a very distressing spirit bothering him. This is the power of God's spirit. We need to learn to use that. We need to learn to use that. A couple of other principles in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16. 2 Corinthians 4.16 talks about The inward man needs to be renewed daily. We need to develop the habit of praying, of reading the Bible daily, of meditating on what we read. I've been doing this more recently. I'll quit my studies about 10 or 10.30. and have a little electric fireplace in my office. I can even use it in the summertime because I can turn the heat off. and I just watch the flame. And it's very relaxing. But just thinking over the day and thoughts come to mind. Uh, we need to give our time, ourselves time to think. Time to think. You know, we did a, uh, <clears throat> had a, an activity when I was teaching in Pasadena at Ambassador College. We took a group of students, men and women, up to Lake Arrowhead, and they rented this big cottage up to cottage. <laughs> Held about 40 people, but with the girls on one side, the guys on the other side. And about Friday afternoon, they were cooking dinner, and somebody said, can we put some Sabbath music on? I said, why not? I decided I'm just going to not say anything else. So they put some Sabbath music on and played two or three records, and then something else put on, something else, and something else. By the time we went to bed, it wasn't Sabbath music. And I thought, well, wait we're going to have a Bible study the next day in the afternoon. So in the morning, they're making breakfast, and they put some other music on. It was not Sabbath music. And uh, I mentioned to them, I said, you know, you guys came up here to get away from Pasadena, to get away from the hustle and bustle. I said, you missed out on an incredible opportunity last night. You could have gone out on the deck, watched the moon come up over the lake, Listen to the tree frogs and whatever in the in the, the the trees. I said you missed an opportunity 
to get close to God's creation because you brought your music with you, boom, 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 that type of thing. Nobody went near the record player for the rest of the day. But they, they missed an incredible opportunity to actually drink in of God's creation, to get closer to God. But we need to nourish God's spirit every day. Second Peter 3.18 says we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are things we need to do. First, uh, Second Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7 talks about stirring up God's spirit which is a spirit of love, a spirit of power, and of a sound mind, a discerning mind. With God's spirit, we're going to discern what's good and what's what's wrong. Without God's spirit, we're going to get in trouble. Without God's spirit, we're going to get in trouble. I want to jump ahead now to uh, a second spirit. Because there is another dimension to human life that we don't learn about in college. We don't learn about it in school. In many cases, you don't learn about it in churches either. But it's another dimension of life, which is a spirit world. But it's from the Bible that we learn about this, not from science, but from the Bible. And the principles here, the, the information. Second Corinthians 4, 4, it says, Satan is the god of this world. Satan is the god of this world. I remember growing up in church, we sang a song about this, this is my father's world. Uh, You know, God created it, but Satan is the one that's pulling the strings today. In Ephesians 2.2, it says he's the prince of the power of the air. Just as God's spirit can impart power to us, Satan also plays with power. He can make doors open and close. He can get people's attention with these devices. Unless we know what's going on, we're going to get pulled into it. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 mentions that Lucifer was the original rebel. He was the original rebel. He led a third of the angels. You read about that in Revelation 12.4. A third of the angels in a rebellion against God because Satan has his own agenda. He knows what God's plan is, and he will do everything he can to upset that plan, to thwart that plan. He knows who God is calling. And if things get difficult for you, especially as you're approaching baptism, hang on, tighten your safety belt. You'll get through it, but he will try and discourage you. You When we have these TWPs, I've encouraged people, pray that God will work in the hearts and minds of those who get an invitation to come because Satan will work on them too. He'll give them a flat tire. <laughs> They'll remember they don't have any gas in the, in the gas tank or, or something. Uh, you know, I was praying before I gave the sermon today, coming over here. Got in 485, and the very first thing I saw was a traffic jam. But I stuck with it, and within about five minutes, things had opened up and things moved along. But Satan will try and, and trip you up. You know, Satan has worked on you. Think of the people he's worked on. He worked on Adam and Eve. God told him certain things, and Satan said, yeah, but you know, he didn't tell you the whole story. <laughs> There's more to it. You, know, you can become like God if you eat this apple. 
Then he worked on Cain. Got Cain to kill his brother. He worked on Job. God gave Satan free access to Job. He worked on Aaron. Moses went up in the mountain. People came to Aaron. We don't know what's happened to, to Moses. Make us a god. Instead of Aaron saying, no, I will not do that, he made him a god. And he said, this is the god that brought you out of Egypt. Satan also worked on Jeroboam. Jeroboam led the ten tribes north, and he realized if they go up to Jerusalem and keep the feast, I'm going to lose them. So here are two gods that brought you out of Egypt. 400 years later, same excuse. Satan went after Jesus Christ, tempted him in the wilderness. He tempted Peter. He got to Ananias and Sapphira. And he will work on each of us if we give him that opportunity. But if we stay close to God, it's not going to happen. But he was the original rebel. He wanted to wreck God's plan, and he still is going to attempt to do that today. We need to be aware of Satan's devices, how he operates. John 8, 44, he's called a murderer and a father of lies. Revelation 12, 9 says he's deceived the whole world. Just something very interesting here, very quickly. You know, we live in in a Western world that has been basically uh, operating from sort of a Christian foundation. And when we talk about being deceiving the world, well, we know that he's deceived the world about Christmas. He's deceived the world about Easter. He's deceived the world about uh, uh, heaven. But when you look at this from a non-Christian approach, when I was in uh, Arizona a couple weeks ago, we went up to Sedona, a very beautiful area up in the mountains with these red sandstone cliffs. It's striking, incredibly striking. They have a lot of Indian... Um, <clears throat> antiques up there. I saw a statue of a sun dancer. And maybe a guy doing an Indian sun dance, but I noticed two pegs on his chest. Two pegs on his chest. So I looked this up, and they would insert these pegs under their skin and tie a rawhide rope to that and sometimes hang themselves by their chest. But this is what pagans do. But it's not just the American Indians. The uh, Hindus have something where they put hooks in their back, tied onto ropes, and then it will pull uh, a heavy weight or something. But they're, they're punishing themselves. But the purpose behind this, they'll punish themselves so the gods will see this and have mercy on their community. It's a false savior. It's a false savior. During the Middle Ages... During the outbreak of the plagues, people were flagellating themselves to punish themselves in hope that God would remove the plague. Now, there are popes today that flagellate themselves to show God that they're they're punishing themselves. You go to the Philippines, you have people over there that will have themselves nailed to a cross during the Easter season. So again, to show God they're willing to punish themselves. Where does this stuff come from? 
Go back to 1 Kings 18 and read about Elijah when he confronted the priests of Baal. They were calling on their God all day long. Elijah said, maybe he's asleep. (laughs) Maybe he's not paying any attention. So they cut themselves with swords and with spears, punishing themselves. But nothing happened. These pagan ideas come from a source that we've been talking about, this other spirit being. You know, today we're living in a world that has different ideas of God. You know, the Jeroboam made idols. Today we have idols in the mind. What we worship today, we don't worship God. We worship ideas or we're influenced by ideas that have come out of the human mind. I came across a book some time ago entitled Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. Seven Men Who Rule the World from the Grave. He's talking about Darwin, Marx, a guy by the name of John Dewey, a fellow by the name of uh, Wellhausen, Wellhausen. In the late 1850s, they came up with ideas. Darwin's idea was that we don't need a creator. We have natural selection. We don't need God. Marx would basically, his ideas were, if we can get rid of religion, Christianity, we get rid of the family, and we get rid of private property, we'll have a, a much better world. Marx was a Jew. Darwin's dad wanted him to become a minister. I mean, they're coming from religious backgrounds, but they have some very different ideas. John Dewey grew up in basically a fundamentalist Protestant-type family, but he came to the conclusion that uh, all we need is human reason. Uh, There's no such thing as a supernatural. Um, There's no such thing as good and evil. And these are the ideas that are floating around today. Wellhausen was an Austrian theologian. He got into biblical criticism. He's actually one of the founders or promoters of that. Uh, and he basically was either fired or resigned his, his, his position of teaching theology because he realized he was undermining the faith of future ministers because <laughs> he doubted the Bible. He didn't believe the Bible was true. These are the ideas that are influencing our society today that uh, we're dealing with today. None of these ideas reveal the purpose of human life. None of these ideas explain why we're here or why we have the problems that we do. The Bible tells us that Satan is the god of this world, that he's influencing this world. One of the biggest deceptions today is that... uh, Satan doesn't exist. We've heard all the comments about God is dead and that God doesn't exist. God is a delusion. Most people today think that Satan is a cartoon character that he only appears on Halloween. But he's a very real individual. He's a very real individual. We need to understand that. came across another book that was entitled The Death of Satan, how Americans lost the sense of evil. Satan didn't die. He's not dead. 
But the influence of Satan is discounted today. Nobody pays any attention to that. But Satan is actually going to influence the world in a very dramatic way. You can read about that in 2 Thessalonians 2. Uh, read the whole chapter. It talks about a man of sin that's influenced by Satan the devil. And it talks about in Revelation 13 that uh, the beast and the false prophet are going to deceive the entire world. The whole world is going to bite. The whole world is going to bite. Brethren, we have been called out of darkness. God has used his Holy Spirit to open our minds to the real cause and also the solutions of the world's problems. I would encourage all of us to strive to come out of this world, to recognize this world for what it is. Don't be sucked into all the the whistles and bells (laughs) of the world. We need to look beyond this world and realize that Christ is coming back. He's going to need a staff of people who have learned the truth about the purpose of human life, the value of God's laws and instructions. They're not burdens. To build a relationship with God, to spend some time on your knees, spend some time in the book, the Bible, every day. Come to value the laws of God so that you can share those laws with everybody else you can come in contact with, that God can use you as an instrument in his hands. Let's take advantage of this incredible opportunity that we've been given to understand the tale of two spirits. It's not a tale. It's not a fairy tale. It's very real. And we'll be able to deal with the challenges of this life whenever we understand how God works, We understand how Satan works. You know, I had to explain that to my son, where the thought came from, to kick his brother in the stomach. He didn't know at that time. But if we explain these things and show how we can deal with uh, these trials and tribulations, maybe spend some time reading through Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about putting on the whole armor of God. Maybe go home and read that. Put on the whole armor of God that will protect us That will protect us against these influences of Satan. So let's prepare to show the world why we have so many problems and prepare to help Jesus Christ literally transform the world. You know, the social activists today want to transform the world into a very different world that we're living in. It's not going to work. But we're going to have the opportunity to literally transform the world in a way that is never going to change if we understand the tale of the two spirits.